the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Coming up uh, later this hour, we're going to talk with the seventh president of Multnomah University. Now, you may have heard the news that there are some changes at Multnomah. She's going to talk a little bit about her tenure as president number seven, and some of the changes that are taking place at Multnomah. We'll also be talking with Andrew Farley. He's the author of 101 Bible Questions and the Surprising Answers You May Not Hear in Church. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour. Also want to give you a quick heads up for Friday's program. We have a special Veterans Day program produced by Jerry Stewart. It's a special titled Silent Heroes that will be uh, in the first hour of tomorrow's program for those of you in Seattle. And then in Portland, we'll continue on with the Christian Hour. Look. So apologize for the technical difficulties. I actually was sitting in my seat, ready to begin the program, started talking, and then I heard myself. I nearly fainted. Anyway, apologize for that. Well, five Republican candidates were on stage on Wednesday night for the third GOP presidential debate at the Adrian Ash Center for the Performing Arts in Miami. Well, NBC News' Lester Holt and Kristen Welker were moderators for the two-hour debate, along with Salem Media talk show host Hugh Hewitt of the Hugh Hewitt Show and the Republican Jewish Coalition co-sponsored the debate along with NBC News and Salem Radio Network. Well, despite being the leading GOP candidate, according to polling, former President Donald Trump was again absent from the debate stage, choosing instead to hold a rally in the Miami suburb of Hylia, Florida. Well, the stage was less crowded than the two previous debates. Since the second debate in September, former Vice President Mike Pence He's withdrawn from the race. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, he's participated in the first two presidential debates, but didn't meet the polling threshold to qualify for the third debate. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson didn't qualify to be on the stage for Wednesday night's face-off or for the previous debate. Candidates who did qualify, if you uh, had the opportunity to watch, you know who they were. But for those who didn't, in this third debate were Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, and the former New York Jersey, um, or I should say New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Well, as mentioned, former President Donald Trump, he wasn't present, but he energized a huge rally on Wednesday night in Hialeah, Florida, as his third counter-programming event to a Republican presidential debate, this one staged in nearby Miami and televised by NBC. Well, the last debate was the lowest-rated debate in the history of politics, Trump told the crowd. I'm not sure that's accurate, but that's what he said. So, therefore, do you think we did the right thing by not participating, he asked. Well, the former president added, I'm standing in front of tens of thousands of people right now, and that's a, uh, well, expletive, a lot harder to do than a debate, end quote. I'm not sure that's true because you're not challenged on what you say from the platform. But nonetheless, Trump's Florida rally came two days after the 45th president testified at a civil trial 
prosecuted by the New York Attorney General Letitia James against the Trump Organization, the family's company. Well, the rally also came a day after off-year elections that saw Republican setbacks in Kentucky and Virginia and a GOP victory in Mississippi. It came the same day that a key House panel subpoenaed President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, and his brother James in a growing investigation of the influence peddling accusations. And the event included an in-person endorsement by Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, a fellow Republican who was Trump's second White House press secretary. Comedian uh, Roseanne Barr, eldest son Donald Trump Jr., and others spoke before the star of the show took to the stage. Trump, running well ahead of his GOP challengers in the polls thus far, has opted to skip the party's presidential debates. Over the weekend, a New York Times poll found that Trump was a, has a comfortable lead over Biden in most battleground states in his bid for a rematch. <clears throat> One wonders how that will translate over time. Meanwhile, Senator Joe Manchin, he joined uh, Fox and Friends to discuss federal charges against Senator Bob Menendez and other issues. He also announced that he would not seek reelection to the Senate, to the West Virginians who have put their trust in me and fought side by side to make our state better. It's been an honor, the honor of my life to serve you, he wrote in a post on X, including a video explaining his decision. When America is at her best, we get things done by putting country before party, working across the aisle and finding common ground. Many times this approach has landed me in hot water, but the fight to unite has been well worth it, he said. He did say he's going to do something of an exploratory uh, tour, uh, perhaps seeking an independent election or a competition for the White House under other means. Turkey's president, Recep uh, Erdogan, is accusing the West, namely the U.S., Thursday of being too weak to even call for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war, a report says. He had previously called Israel a war criminal for its military actions against Hamas, made the comment during a meeting of the 10-member Economic Cooperation Organization in Uzbekistan, according to the Associated Press. Erdogan said Western nations and organizations are observing these massacres by Israel from afar, but are too weak to even call for a ceasefire, let alone criticize child murderers. I'm not sure which child murderers he's referring to. It was the murder of children that sparked the current um, retaliation response by Israel. He went on to say, if we, the Economic Cooperation Organization as Muslims, are not going to raise our voices today, when will we raise our voices? Well, the Economic Cooperation Organization consists of Afghanistan, Azerbaijan, Iran, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, Tajikistan, Turkey, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. Erdogan ripped the West uh, on the same day that the White House announced the Israeli military had agreed to honor four-hour daily pauses in fighting to allow humanitarian aid to flow into Gaza. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. <clears throat> Coming up later this hour, we'll have a conversation with Dr. Jessica Lynn Taylor. She is Multnomah University's seventh president. We'll talk to her about that role and changes at Multnomah University. So stay with us. It's going to be a, a great time to catch up with what's happening at Multnomah. Well, Ibrahim Abu Magsib, the head of Hamas anti-tank missile unit in the Central Camps Brigade, was killed in a 
fighter jet strike Thursday. Israeli officials announced he was accused of directing and carrying out many of the anti-tank attacks against Israeli citizens and military members. Intelligence with the IDF and the Israel Israeli Securities Authority determined that he was uh, killed in that strike. The Navy also struck Hamas anti-tank missile launching posts used to attack IDF troops operating in the Gaza Strip as part of the assistance offered to forces on the ground. The military operation continues with a uh, brief pause uh, agreed upon to allow some from the Gaza Strip to move to safety. A GOP lawmaker is calling for a federal investigation into whether Americans donating money to pro-Palestinian charities are unwittingly sending cash to Hamas. These terrorist organizations are getting millions of dollars from American citizens who think they're giving out of the goodness of their heart to help people. And what they're actually doing is funding these groups. That's a quote from Representative Greg Murphy, a Republican out of North Carolina. Murphy wrote to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen asking what, if any, plan she has to ensure Americans' charitable dollars are not going to Hamas and other similar organizations. I write this letter with grave concern regarding the use of fraudulent charitable organizations to fund Hamas and other affiliated terrorist groups, Murphy wrote. In the wake of Hamas's brutal attack on the Israeli people, it is essential that the Treasury Department is taking the necessary action to clamp down on funding that bankrolls Hamas and its affiliates, end quote. Murphy also warned that social media could be used to help amplify alleged charitable groups that funnel funds to terrorist organizations like Hamas. With the rise of social media, we've seen countless charitable organizations use these platforms to raise millions of dollars in donations intended to help Palestinian civilians. At least one organization, American Muslims for Palestine, is under investigation for where its funds are going. The Virginia Attorney General is probing the organization for potential violations of Virginia's charitable solicitation laws, according to a press release on A.G. Jason Myers' website. Republican House lawmaker who is co-chair of the Northern Border Security Caucus is warning that the U.S.-Canada border is virtually unwatched and being overlooked in Washington, D.C., in part due to the ongoing crisis at the southern border. Representative Mike Kelly, a Republican out of Pennsylvania, says um, that days after the t- he testified to the House Judiciary Committee about the, the uh, threats and challenges posed by the northern border, which is relatively unpatrolled when compared to the southern border, he wanted them to understand that we have a 5,500-mile border, the longest contiguous border in the world, to our north, and it is virtually unwatched right now, he said. The numbers seem at the um, U.S.-Canada border are eclipsed by the enormous numbers seen at the besieged southern border, where there were over 2.4 million migrant encounters in 2023. In the north, there were just 189,402 in this fiscal year, but that's a sharp increase from just 27,000 seen in the year 21 and 22. Border officials have been sounding the alarm over the sharp increase with the head of the Swanton sector calling for additional help this year. In that sector, agents have seen encounters from 76 different countries and numbers have surpassed the last 10 years combined. Now, with the hemisphere-wide movement of migrants, more people are trying to get in through the U.S.-Canada border, first by flying up to Canada from South America and then moving into the U.S., Kelly has pointed to stats that show that 55% of all illegal drug seizures by weight have come in through the northern border, and that while numbers of border encounters and drug smuggling have increased, staffing have remained consistent since 2009. 
Meanwhile, Kelly has noted the vast majority of the 564 terror watch list encounters in fiscal year 23, which in, it occurred at ports of entry last year, were at the northern border. He said that there was one 500-mile area where there was only one Border Patrol official keeping an eye on it. Meanwhile, the Department of Health and Human Services has rolled out a new gender pronoun policy that one Heritage Foundation expert and former Health and Human Service official says violates employee rights and will result in firings for misgendering and may in fact be unconstitutional. Portland's teachers are on strike, leaving some 45,000 students and their parents to wrestle with the changes that come with the shuttered schools. On one end of the strike, teachers voiced concern over salaries that haven't kept pace with inflation, the stresses of larger class sizes and lack of resources, all elements driving a teacher's exodus, devastating school districts nationwide. On the other hand, the district looks at the demands of the Portland Association of Teachers with spending concerns, they argue, could translate into staffing cuts in the future. Parents just want the ordeal sorted out. Portland Public Schools, meanwhile, had consistently posted on its website to inform parents of the daily progress regarding negotiations or lack of progress. Richard Goldberg and Anaya Kriven, they urged stopping the U.N. from enabling Hamas war crimes. A recent Israeli airstrike in the Jabba Leah Gaza area killed senior Hamas terrorist Ibrahim Ba'ari who played a direct role in the October 7th massacres. His battalion of terrorists had commandeered buildings in an area controlled by the United Nations and built tunnels under the neighborhood that uh, collapsed during the strikes. Yet U.N. experts blasted Israel for this legitimate strike on a terror target that Hamas defended with human shields. Congress should respond by putting off all funding for U.N. agencies that blithely ignored how their work in Gaza benefits Hamas. Hamas, of course, has a history of embedding its terror assets in U.N. areas. Its members are likely beneficiaries of U.N. assistance, possibly even on the payroll. That's because the United Nations doesn't recognize Hamas as a terror organization. And worse, the so-called refugee agency radicalized Palestinians to hate Israel and Jews. They refer to it as a refugee area, although these are not uh, refugees. They have been in the area since 1948. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may have heard, big changes are coming, well, have come to Multnomah University. But first, Multnomah announced the official appointment of its seventh president, Jessica Taylor. Uh, Dr. Taylor has served as interim president since April of this year. Dr. Taylor has a history with Multnomah, first as a student of Multnomah's Master of Counseling program, then as a member of the Board of Trustees, as Multnomah's Vice President of uh, Diversity and Inclusive Development, and most recently as interim president. And as you may have heard, Multnomah University has entered into a new chapter of its storied history. Multnomah University announced a groundbreaking partnership with Jessup University to be renamed Multnomah Campus of Jessup University. It's a new chapter indeed. We'll we'll get to all of that, but first I want to welcome Dr. Jessica Taylor as she joins us for the first time. Welcome, Dr. Taylor, and congratulations. Thank you so much, Georgine. Thanks for having me. It's a delight to have you. Well, this has been a very challenging season to serve as president at Multnomah. So first, let me ask you, uh, let me thank you, I should say, uh, for staying the course and leading our beloved university into safe waters. Tell us a little bit about your journey. 
Absolutely. Well, as you said, I started as interim president on April 20th. So it's been a little bit over six months in the position. But yes, we think we have navigated out of troubled waters into much brighter days. So it's been a lot of challenge, but our faculty, staff, and students have done this together as a collaborative effort. And we're really excited for the days ahead. Well, I'm happy to hear you say that because I think a lot of people are wringing their hands or not sure how to interpret what's happened at Multnomah. And I'm hoping that we can clarify some of that in our conversation today. I just wanted to mention that no single city has been a greater, uh, seen a greater proportion of its colleges struggle financially than Portland. Merrillhurst <laughs> University shut its doors in 2018. That was followed by Oregon College of Arts and Crafts in 2019. Concordia University shuttered its doors in 2020. And Multnomah, an historically independent institution, announced on Tuesday that it's going to become a satellite campus of Jessup University, a Christian institution that's located about 600 miles away in Rockland, California. Now, this strategic partnership, this collaboration with Jessup was historic and unexpected, at least for onlookers. What drove this move to partner with Jessup? Give us a little bit of that backstory, if you will. Absolutely. So I think that we've had a lot of financial challenges, as have our sister schools in the area and just Christian higher education in general. And I was looking for a way to not end up like one of those statistics and Mm -hmm. to not add long list of closures, especially sudden closures. And so we looked from the very beginning of my presidency for mergers and acquisitions, partnerships, and basically wanted to come with open hands and say the business model of so much of higher education is not working across the industry, and it is particularly difficult to be a faith-based institution in the heart of Portland. But we love the heart of Portland. We love serving. We think that Christian higher education needs a place, especially in a place like Portland. And so then we look for ways to humbly say to other people, are you doing this better than we are in the business model? Do you have uh, better financial strength than we do? Do you offer different programs for our students? I think often people think we have to do it ourselves. If you want it done right, do it yourself. And we really came with an attitude of we don't do it the best. Let's look across the kingdom of God for like-minded partners that could do something and teach us. And so there was really a humble posture to say, let's stop trying to solve our financial problems by grabbing more students, just adding more programs or crossing our fingers. Let's actually try to disrupt the business model that I believe is broken. Well, Multnomah is now going to be or is referred to as Multnomah Campus of Jessup University. Will you explain how this partnership will work? Absolutely. We're really excited about it. So what it looks like is that in this transition with our students before we end this semester on December 15th is we will have our students in a teach out program or basically be able to keep the majority of the faculty and staff around them, keep our campus, keep pieces of our name, keep our logo, keep our mascot, all of those beautiful things. And so for students, what it should look like is they show up for class on Monday, the same that they did on Friday. Uh, which was really one of our our main goals is that students would not have an interruption to their education. Eventually, they will have a degree that has Jessup's name on it right alongside Multnomah. And so that, again, allows us the financial stability that we've been looking for, but also a lot of expanded degree options and an ability to expand what we offer here in Portland as well in areas like tech and healthcare, Bible and um, 
mental health, just all kinds of different areas that we can expand. So it should be really great for our students, and our goal is to make that seamless for them so that they can stay at Multnomah as Multnomah Lions, but just be powered by Jessup. Yeah, yeah. Now, Multnomah and Jessup were both established in the 1930s. They have remarkably similar histories equipping students. Can you tell us a bit about Jessup University, uh, which listeners may not know is located in Northern California? Absolutely. So Jessup has been dedicated to Christ-centered higher education as well since 1939. We were birthed in 1936. So again, have that very similar pioneering history, have a similar care for the Word of God and the deity of Jesus, love our students. And so there was just a lot of synergy in that place. They have a Rockland campus as well as a San Jose campus. And Mm -hmm. so Portland will be another location that they are adding. And we think that that's a really strategic regional kind of triangle, actually, where we could even expand beyond then in the future. And Jessup has the same trailblazing and kind of pioneering spirit that Multnomah did to serve the local church as well. Now, Multnomah University managed to preserve much of the original mission and values of its founders. As the motto used to be, if it's Bible you want, you want Multnomah. Well, in light of this new association, what aspects of the old Multnomah uh, do we expect to see uh, preserved and what aspects do you see changing? Thank you for asking that question. So I think that the founder's vision of Bible being central is still very central. If you come talk to our students, if you come talk to our faculty, we have a robust Bible faculty. And I think our biblical education is amazing. So really what we've done is to say, yes, if it's Bible you want, we absolutely still want you to come to Multnomah. We think that this is the best place to get that education. But we realized that over time, it had only become about the Bible and not necessarily translated into culture to also become about Jesus. So we now say in our mission statement that we are compelled by the love of Christ, and in that we integrate biblical wisdom, so still that that real foundation of our, our biblical integration, with academic and professional excellence. And then we say we want to humbly engage in God's redemptive work in the world. So I think it's expanded from the Bible, not walking away from it, but saying if it, we don't worship Scripture. However, we use Scripture to do God's redemptive work, to change us, to compel us by love, to be disciples. So I actually think it's a beautiful marriage of Old and New Testament of what Multnomah was and what Multnomah really can be to be very real answers to a very hurting world instead of only a training ground for people that would only go into traditional ministry type of vocation. Mm-hmm. Now we see ministry in the workplace and in the the secular field as well. Inside Higher Ed reported back in August that Multnomah was dropping its longstanding requirement that students sign a statement of faith. Was that an effort to raise enrollment to bring in additional tuition dollars or does it represent a move away from Multnomah's historic mission? Yeah, I think that there was definitely mostly a faith component about that. And what I mean by that is we realized that because of that Multnomah, I'll call it the Multnomah bubble, Uh, then sometimes we weren't really preparing everyone and people were at different journey points in their faith and couldn't necessarily be honest about that is what we realized. We knew that there would be no immediate growth in enrollment. We we did not expect that to to have a financial incentive at the time, um, potentially over time, but we knew that that would not be an immediate solution. But we also recognized that many of our sister schools that we might want a partnership already have what's known as open enrollment. So already we're accepting Christians and non-Christians while having a statement of faith 
for all of their faculty and staff and potentially having code of conduct requirements for their students. And so we also did recognize that we needed to be poised to partner better with folks that accepted Christians and non-Christians in their student body. And I think that we were. How does that translate on in campus life in terms of individuals whose lifestyle might conflict with a biblical view on a particular subject? Has Does that uh, open the door to controversy or how do you see the challenges that, you know, go without saying that the culture might present with students coming through Multnomah in its new configuration? Yeah, it's really important to us to offer what I call informed consent. So each student would know that we are a Christian institution, that everyone on the faculty and staff, all the employees are Christians. We sign a doctrinal statement, statement of faith, and they sign basically community covenant agreements, which say, regardless of what I believe, regardless of what my lifestyle choices are, while I'm a student of Multnomah, I am committed to living life in this community based on biblical standards. And so we have uh, conduct procedures for when that doesn't happen that we really hope are redemptive. Uh, but that has been a main focus is making sure that students understand that if you come to Multnomah, we are welcoming you into this space, but we're welcoming you into a Christ-centered space so that the culture doesn't um, doesn't influence Multnomah in a negative way, but that Multnomah has the chance to influence the culture in a mm-hmm. positive way. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's a very long story, but how did we get here? Some might assume, in fact, I'm getting a signal, I need to take a break. But when we come back, I want to ask you how we arrived at this point, because it's not a story that began with your presidency. It really predates that by quite a few years. So we'll get into that in just a moment. Again, we are talking this afternoon with the new president of Multnomah University and under the new name, Dr. Jessica Lynn Taylor. We'll continue in a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You are listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and we're continuing my conversation with Dr. Jessica Lynn Taylor. She is the president of Multnomah University, uh, currently named by the new association with Jessup University, Multnomah Campus of Jessup University. Now, one of the things I wanted to clarify was that this development did not happen uh, within the few weeks that you became president. This was a challenge that Multnomah has been facing for quite some time. It's probably a very long story. But how did we get here? What was the bottom line for this partnership and transition that we're now witnessing? I think what put us in the position was multiple different factors, one of which being the financial decline, the decline in enrollment that we're seeing across higher education. We had significant leadership changes over the last several years that have been difficult for our 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 community to transition through as well. And so when we came, I think actually we were looking at our mission statement and saying, what is our mission? And are we still supposed to move forward? Is there a place still in the kingdom of God for Multnomah? I think it was really brave of us to ask that question, Mm -hmm. continuing to fight forward, demanding that God would have us stay alive and, and thrive even. But we asked. And so with a group of the board, a faculty, staff representation, we got together looking at that mission and actually started looking at our history, uh, specifically about our founders and and looked into what was it that was the heart that we didn't want to lose, that was worth contending for no matter what. And we really grounded on the founder's heart, actually, to bring us into a place to say what would be next for us. Multnomah's uh, recently announced four departments, the School of Bible, a Biblical Seminary, School of Professional Studies, and an online university. Will that change under the new partnership? 
it'll probably shift around. But the amazing thing is that in a lot of these type of situations, uh, on the legal side especially, what you have is you have a lot of loss. And we are not losing our seminary, our grad school, or our undergrad school. So we will have all of those represented. They may be under actually more schools as we expand. Uh, but each of those schools and their distinctives will remain, which is a miracle. Yeah, it really is. I mean, this whole thing really is quite remarkable if you understand the challenges that many um uh, schools of higher education are, are currently uh, facing. Now, how will this collaborative partnership impact your role as president and that of the faculty and staff? So I will become the campus president of Multnomah campus of Jessup University uh, as we transition. Faculty and staff will shift around underneath uh, some of the leadership of Jessup University, which we are already uh, so excited, buzzing with excitement as they reach out to us, as they are praying for us, as they have really been laboring right alongside us to, to move this deal along. It's actually a beautiful picture of kingdom-minded uh, collaboration of people that are saying, hey, I might take on more work so that you have less. I might pave a way or open a door for you so that we can do this in the kingdom. So we're just a buzz on both campuses, I think, with the possibility of the collaboration. Yeah. Will there be local independence in Multnomah's operation under your leadership at all, or is it all collaborative and all um, connected? I think it's all going to be collaborative, and that's really what we would like, especially with what we would call a centralized or shared service model. We have struggled for years to be able to pay people well and to be able to have the robustness of a fully independent institution in things like our business office. And so to be able to have some help and support with that will be great. But Jessup is really committed to making sure that Multnomah maintains her distinctive. It's a distinctive Jessup does not have. It strengthens um, Jessup to be able to have the biblical uh, trainings that we, we have, to be able to have the seminary that we have. And so they're actually really looking forward to expanding and learning from us. We're looking forward to expanding and learning from them. But keeping the distinctive is a really important piece. It's unity in diversity, not that we all become the same thing, but that we have distinctive things as one school. Well, again, it's uh, such an innovation that uh, to put together this kind of partnership and for both uh, universities then to have the opportunity to thrive as opposed to simply dwindling and fading into mm -hmm. history, which would have um, very likely been one scenario um, that, that could have happened. Now, this collaboration, from what I understand, will expand Multnomah's academic portfolio, it will include innovative programs and in technology, as you mentioned earlier, mental health, healthcare, and beyond. Can you just uh, talk a bit more about that so we have some idea of what Multnomah, this campus, will be offering that is different from what um, you might have uh, had before? Yeah, so again, we will have the biblical foundation and the, what we call the Bible core. So each and every student will still go to chapel, will still have the Bible core as the foundation of their education, whether they're in a psychology, business, tech degree. Part of what we want to do is to expand into new partnerships within our city to impact Portland and really this whole region. But to say that Christians need to be in the marketplace. And so as we have students who are requesting new majors and uh, excited about new jobs that will pay them well, that will allow them to support ministries and allow them to, to grow and stay in the city. We're really excited that that expansiveness, again, still grounded with the biblical education piece, will be able to expand beyond what we what we offer right now. Yeah. I, how might we pray for you as the campus president and for the Multnomah staff and faculty 
uh, as it uh, transitions, at least in our hearts and minds, to Multnomah Campus Mm -hmm. at Jessup University? You can really pray for us. Some of our people are grieving, and I think that, that, that we lament the fact that I think so many of us uh, in higher education are in this space that we can lament what we lost. And so please be praying for my community as I think, especially our alumni are struggling. Mm-hmm. The one, my alma mater gone. I, I can proclaim boldly that it's not, that we are really excited. But in alignment with a biblical history, we will die give everything away, come back to life in a really beautiful way. And so I hope that where people can get is to see the redemptive arc of what God allowed to remain and that people will see that that was the best part of us that got to remain and be excited about that to join the vision. But for now, we're going to be in a season of of lament and of grief for some of our folks, excitement for other folks. So just please pray that we would have love and empathy and we'd be compelled by the love of Christ as we connect with each and every person, regardless of how they're feeling about the change. Change is hard. Yeah, it is hard. But, you know, these ministries don't belong to us. They belong to him. And as he moves things around and orchestrates the affairs of men, we just look on in awe. And I think we would do well to just anticipate God is is about something at Multnomah. And he has not abandoned that project. He will continue to move forward and to train uh, leaders in in uh, the Christian community and Multnomah will have an impact in our community. And we need to pray um, that we would be able to see the fruit of that and whatever he's calling us to do to support the ministry, that we would step forward to do that. Well, I'm so grateful that you've taken the time to talk with us, to introduce you to the KPDQ listening audience for those who have yet to uh, to meet you or to hear your voice. Uh, we're grateful for your leadership, and please know that you have an open invitation uh, in the days ahead if you'd like to communicate what's happening at Multnomah, um, because we care about the university, its students, its faculty, its president, and we want to see you succeed. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your support and prayers, Georgine. You are so welcome. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Thank you. Again, Dr. Jessica Lynn Taylor. Multnomah University's seventh president, and she is overseeing a transition there. And as uh, she mentioned, it's challenging for those who are used to things being one way for them to change. But God often requires us to change. So our focus isn't on what's familiar, what we know, but on him. Multnomah Campus at Jessup University, I should say of Jessup University, is the new name for Multnomah. And there are big things afoot. So keep them in your prayers. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show News. Up next, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, renowned author Andrew Farley, his latest work is 101 Bible Questions and the Surprising Answers You May Not Hear in Church. Well, he dives into the toughest and most provocative inquiries about Christianity, Delivering biblically grounded answers that just may upend what you thought you knew about your faith. He says his new book is not just another scripture study. Well, we'll find out in just a few moments. Well, Andrew Farley is um, guiding millions to the liberating power of God's grace. He serves as lead pastor of the Grace Church in Dallas, Texas. He's also the mind behind BibleQuestions.com. He's penned nine books. The Grace Message, his nationwide live call-in radio program, is broadcast across numerous local radio outlets and on Sirius XM satellite radio throughout the U.S. and Canada. His latest 101 Bible Questions is the subject of our conversation, and I want to welcome you uh, back to uh, the Georgine Rice Show. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you, Georgine. Great to be here. 
Now, I mentioned the title of your book is 101 Bible Questions and the Surprising Answers You May Not Hear in Church. Now, I find the subtitle of your book a bit challenging. Now, why will we be surprised by the answers in your book? Is this an indictment on the church or uh, how would you explain that? Yeah, I would say it is uh, a challenge because I think a lot of times we leave churches today entertained uh, but not instructed. Of course, this is not true of every church in the world, but uh, when you've got 31 flavors of church, so to speak, just like Baskin Robbins, you're going to end up with all kinds of doctrines and teachings that conflict with one another. And then I think we have to come back and confront the radical truth that you know, God has one single message uh, to us about his son, Jesus. And so this book is asking some really core questions like, can I lose my salvation? And, you know, uh, is there an unforgivable sin? And do I really need to give 10% of my income to the church? And can women do anything in church or are they uh, to play a secondary role? So lots of uh, controversial questions and confrontational topics in this book. Now, you're not suggesting that the, um, the church is necessarily misleading believers, but that perhaps it's just not challenging or teaching believers as we ought to be taught on a regular basis when we come together as a congregation? Yeah, I mean, very few people in this world wake up every day and say, I want to intentionally mislead people. But, I mean, let's face it, that when you've got one group that says you can lose your salvation and the other says you can't, uh, only one of those can be correct. And then when you've got one group that says God's mandating 10% of your income and the other group saying, no, he's not, uh, only one of those can be correct. So it's not an intentional misleading on anyone's part, I don't believe. But at the end of the day, what I'm saying is this book is saying let's dive deep into Scripture uh, through discussion and interaction in groups even. Uh, You're going to have an opportunity to decide what you believe and why you believe it. Yeah, absolutely. And more importantly, what do the Scriptures teach? Now, we may come to varying conclusions, but the important thing is where do I go as the source of of uh, information so that I can understand what God is, is teaching. You've got the Calvinists and you've got the Arminians. You know, they're going to be at, at jogger uh, yep. heads um, throughout. But there are some fundamental truths that we must endeavor to understand in order to please God and to know what he's calling us to do. Amen. I agree with that all the way. Now, is this also a critique of believers who are not studying God's word on their own? I know that we live at a time and in a culture where biblical illiteracy is uh, very common. Um, To what degree are we responsible as believers and followers of Jesus to undertake to understand his word and apply it in our own personal study? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The book isn't intended uh, to sort of, um, you know, challenge people to do that directly. I don't say that in the book, uh, but it's pretty obvious today. Look at our culture. Uh, we live in a social media culture where if you can't express yourself in a soundbite of 20 mm-hmm. seconds or less, or you can't put it on a meme, fit it on a graphic, then maybe nobody's going to digest it. And therefore, I think we have become biblically illiterate Uh, We're maybe scared to ask our pastor sometimes. We don't want to be embarrassed 
uh, to challenge something that was taught. Uh, we sit at the Thanksgiving dinner table, and there are certain topics that are taboo, like politics and religion. So I think we've actually cultivated a culture where asking these sort of questions is not forbidden, but it's certainly discouraged in some cases. Go with the flow. Mm -hmm. Uh, That seems to be the mantra. Don't ask too many questions. Yeah, be politically incorrect. Don't offend anyone. Just keep your thoughts to yourself and keep those unanswered questions to yourself so we don't have to confront anything in a very serious, uh, serious way. Yeah, it's almost like we believe that Christianity is about peacekeeping all the time and pe- and people-pleasing all the time. And Jesus said he came with a sword. And, you know, this message, it will divide families at times. You look at the risks that the Jews took in the early church. I mean, they were bunking tradition. Uh, they were risking rejection, even torture and murder uh, of themselves. I mean, they were risking their very lives being tortured and killed uh, because of what they believed about Jesus Christ. So I think at a minimum, we should be willing uh, for some feathers to be ruffled, some cages to be rattled as we ask some important and necessary questions. Absolutely. Let's talk about how the book is structured. Generally, when you uh, get a book, you read it from beginning to end, from cover to cover. How do you see this book being used for those who have serious questions, uh, that they're looking for serious answers and biblical answers to? Yeah, you can certainly read this book from beginning to end if you'd like to. It's set up that way. So let me give you an example. I mean, the first section talks about salvation, and salvation is the very core of our relationship with God. How do we start that relationship? How do we get in Christ and and safe in him? And so you talk about safety. The next section is security. So uh, once you're saved, can you lose it? Uh, Is God's grace going to run out on you? Is the blood of Jesus going to be exhausted? Could you sin one too many times and ruin everything? So we go from salvation to security to forgiveness, then issues like judgment and rewards. So you can see how the book opens with a very foundational approach. And then as the book comes to a close, we're talking about other things that are important like um, marriage and divorce and issues of gender and sex and how to address false teaching. So it's definitely a comprehensive look at some of the most important questions about Christianity. Well, and I appreciate this isn't just a list of things, uh, you know, Andrew Farley's views on a variety of subjects. You draw the leader's attention, the reader's attention directly into God's word. What do the scriptures teach us on this subject? With this question, what does God say about it and what does his word tell us we ought to do? So I appreciate that you focus our attention on where it ought to be focused, and that is on God's Word, and especially if we're not in a congregation where we're going to get that on a regular basis. We're going to continue our conversation with Andrew Farley in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, his book is titled 101 Bible Questions and the Surprising Answers You May Not Hear in Church. 
We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Andrew Farley. He is a prolific author. He's also the lead pastor of Grace Church in Dallas, Texas. He is um, has a nationwide live call-in radio program. It's broadcast across numerous uh, radio outlets and on Sirius XM satellite radio throughout the United States and Canada. We're talking about his latest book, 101 Bible Questions and the Surprising Answers you may not hear in church. I appreciate that you structure the uh, chapters so that in addition to reading what um, the scriptures have to say on a variety of challenging subjects, but you also encourage conversation and discussion to help us go deeper and to uh, build a foundation upon which we can live out what the scriptures are actually teaching. So it's designed to be very practical and user-friendly. Yes, it starts out with a quick answer. Look, if you've got 60 seconds and you're wanting a quick dive, that's great. But then after the quick answer, you're invited to dive deeper for several pages. I mean, throughout the book, I would say there's over a thousand references to scripture and quotes and invitations to dig into God's word. And then at the end of every single question, uh, there's uh, a fun section called Let's Make It a Conversation. And that could be something that you're just journaling by yourself. Or if you have a small group and you've decided to use this book, uh, it's a great way to spark conversation. So if someone is interested in leading a group, hosting a group, they're wondering what to use next, uh, this would be a great option. Yeah. Uh, Give us some examples of some surprising biblical answers from your book that will catch our listeners off guard. Yeah, well, I think we live in an apology-based system today, at least between us humans. You know, I'll forgive you if you apologize. I'll forgive you if you show up on my doorstep and have that apology on your lips and sorrow in your heart and uh, seeing some tears in your eyes would be a real bonus. And that's how we relate to each other. But that's not exactly how God operates. Uh, while certainly an apology and repentance and turning from sin, all of that is very healthy, and we see that in the Bible, but ultimately we are forgiven not because we apologize. We're forgiven because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So this really helps a person who's been asking questions like, Uh, Do I have to confess every single sin to be forgiven? And what about the ones that I can't remember any longer? What about the ones I've forgotten about? And what if I die with some unconfessed sins? Or what if a loved one dies by suicide and they didn't have a chance to confess those sort of leftover sins? Lots of questions can, can crop up if we don't understand God's blood economy for sins, that Jesus died once, he took away our sins forever, and we Christians are totally forgiven people. Mm, absolutely. What shift do you aspire to ignite in readers through this book? Now, obviously, these are difficult questions that, for many Christians, can be a real stumbling block. Understanding what the scriptures teach gives clarity and direction and peace. What do you hope this um, book of answers will ignite in those who struggle? 
Yeah, I think the key word is stability. I mean, my hope and prayer as this book goes out into the world is that people find stability in Jesus and find peace with God, real peace, not not the double talk that we might sometimes experience where we feel so great about our salvation experience. And then many people I know spend the rest of their days trying to get on God's good side or get back in his graces or uh, somehow get his favor again bestowed upon them. I hope that this book really shows people that we continue in Jesus the same way that we started. It's because of him and what he did. It's because of his grace. He's gifted us with an amazing new identity. We're in his family forever. We're safe in his arms and we're loved. We're talking about the book 101 Bible Questions and the surprising answers you may not hear in church. Andrew Farley is my guest. The book is very approachable. It takes on a variety of subjects and provides a quick answer, gives you an opportunity to dive deeper, and then to make conversation in order that we might not just get an answer as in an academic pursuit, but have a genuine deepening understanding that's fueled by a desire uh, toward obedience to Christ and to honor Him with how we uh, not only conduct our, ourselves, but how we deal with questions that are yet to be answered. What advice would you offer to uh, listeners uh, who wrestle with asking tough questions about Christianity and the Bible and don't always get the straight answers, uh, you know, aside from your book that they're looking for? Yeah, well, first of all, it's very normal to need answers and to ask questions. You're not unusual. I mean, remember that anybody who says, I've got it all up here, and they point to their head, they're basically saying they're a know-it-all, and we need to run for the, from, run for the hills from that mentality, because God tells us in Romans 12 that we will always be experiencing the renewing of the mind, and that's a process. It's a journey. And it's an adventure. So save yourself some time and energy wasted traveling in the wrong direction by going ahead right now, right here, and asking the important questions about your faith so that you're not 95 years old looking back and saying, oh, I wish I knew that when uh, Jesus wants us to know the truth right now. And he says it'll never disappoint and it'll absolutely set us free. If I am in a church environment where entertainment seems to trump solid, sound biblical teaching, what advice do you give to the believer who's serious about their faith? They want to know God. They want to know his word. They want to draw near to him and apply his word to their life circumstances and to every aspect of life. What do you say to them moving forward if they want to deepen and grow in their faith? Well, either by themselves or with a group, they're going to have to engage in some of the most obvious uh, things like Bible study, which is really eating good food. So if you're sitting there listening to a sermon and it's very general and talking about peripheral issues like three steps to a, be a better person or five ways to communicate better or you know, if you're just being entertained with principles and rules and religious ideas, uh, you need to be going for that deeper, richer experience, getting better spiritual food. And that's going to happen through Bible study. I mean, God's word is where it's at. 
And without God's word, we really have no message except maybe self-improvement. So God's word is what it's all about. And I would encourage that person to take the time to eat really good spiritual food, dive in, especially with other believers, as you can encourage one another in the truth of the gospel. Now, your book, 101 Bible Questions, has only been out for a, not even for a full month yet. Where can our listeners not only find a copy of the book, but also engage with you online? Yeah, so the book is out. It's available on Amazon.com. It's available wherever books are sold. So you can get it online all over the place. Uh, But also, Georgine, there's just an amazing new tool that we have called BibleQuestions.com. And I'm excited about this because we spent about a year prepping this site, BibleQuestions.com, and you can go there, and in 10 seconds or less, you can get a a question answered and in 95 languages. So it's been an incredible mission for us as people in the Middle East are getting their questions answered in Arabic and people in China getting their questions answered in Mandarin. So I encourage people check it out. It's a lot of fun. If you're preparing a Bible study, if you want 10 quick references on a particular topic, or you got a personal issue going on and you want biblical counsel, well, we have BibleQuestions.com ready for you. Oh, excellent. Well, a pastor, teacher, writer, talk show host, Andrew Farley, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Once again, the book is titled 101 Bible Questions and the Surprising Answers You May Not Hear in Church. The book is published by Salem um, Books and is available wherever books are sold. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. So stay with us, unless you're in Seattle, at which point, so long. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the U.S. military on Wednesday said American warplanes struck a weapons storage facility in eastern Syria that officials said was being used by Iran-backed militants responsible for dozens of drone and rocket attacks against American troops in the region over the last three weeks. It was the second such strike in the past two weeks. Things seem to be escalating. Well, attacks by Iranian-backed militias on bases in Iraq and Syria hosting U.S. troops number 41 as of Wednesday. Pentagon Press Secretary Brigadier General Pat Ryder on Monday characterized the operations as repeated harassing attacks of drones and rockets. At least 46 personnel sustained injuries, including traumatic brain injuries and minor wounds from shrapnel, headaches, perforated eardrums, and other conditions. Well, when terrorists tell you who they are, you need to believe who they say they are. They spent four weeks marching through college campuses and city uh, centers demanding ceasefire. Meanwhile, Hamas tells the New York Times that they want permanent war for their political purposes and design the October 7th massacres to get one. Well, when they tell you who they are, believe them. They envision a state of total war with Israel that will force other Arab nations to join them to destroy Israel and slaughter its Jews. And the weak sense have only brought them closer to that goal. When Hamas tells you who they are, you need to believe them. The New York Times reports it was necessary to change the entire equation and not just have a clash. That's a member of Hamas's top leadership body speaking to the New York Times in Doha, Gutter. We succeeded in putting the Palestinian issue back on the table, and now no one in the region is experiencing calm. 
I hope that the state of war with Israel will become permanent on all the borders and that the Arab world will stand with us, another Hamas media advisor told The Times. When Hamas tells you who they are, you need to believe them and respond accordingly. Meanwhile, pro-Palestinian protesters repeatedly interrupted a congressional hearing dedicated to examining the state of free speech rights in higher education amid rising anti-Semitism across the U.S. Anti-Israeli protesters periodically disrupted the testimony of six witnesses during a House Judiciary hitting, hearing rather on Wednesday. Jordan also spoke about colleges and universities allegedly targeting conservative student groups like Young Americans for Freedom and the simultaneous rise in censorship of such students and other Americans with conservative views. Pro-Palestinian demonstrators repeatedly interrupted the Judiciary Committee hearing on free speech, demonstrating very little regard for that principle. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer said that he's going to issue subpoenas on Wednesday to Hunter Biden and his business associates, Rob Walker, as well as President Biden's brother, James Biden, to appear for depositions. The committee says financial records show the family created a complex web of more than 20 shell companies in a concerted effort to hide payments from foreign adversaries. The family, its business associates, and their companies raked in more than $24 million from foreign nationals over a period of five years. That includes millions of dollars from China, Russia, Ukraine, Romania, and Kazakhstan. Well, the subpoenaed and voluntary testimony will likely feed into the larger impeachment inquiry as Republicans seek to determine whether President Biden abused his office or committed any type of high crime or misdemeanor. Comer in September subpoenaed personnel and uh, business bank uh, records belonging to both Hunter and James Biden. Those subpoenaed records have revealed new lines of questioning with regard to whether President Biden knew about or was involved in his family's business dealings. The man who police have questioned in relation to the death of a Jewish man during a clash with pro-Palestinian protesters is a 50-year-old college professor. Uh, he teaches computer science at Ventura Community College in California, allegedly hit Paul Kessler with a, a, a megaphone, knocking him to the ground. Police raided his home on a quiet cul-de-sac in Moore Park, California, on Sunday evening. He is uh, unabashed in his support for the Palestinian cause, which he has a right to be, posting online a video of an activist um, compared, uh, comparing the terrorist group Hamas with the historic civil rights icons who never beheaded children and murdered and raped women. Just saying. A witness to the fatal altercation between Paul Kessler and the pro-Palestinian protester, the professor, said Tuesday that the suspect stalked he and Kessler during the demonstration, recording them with his phone and harassing them with a bullhorn. Kessler got into a physical altercation, and the uh, pro-Palestinian protester, professor, on Sunday in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, He suffered non-lethal injuries to his face and a lethal injury to the back of his uh, head consistent with a fall. The medical examiner's office concluded that Kessler's death was a homicide. On Tuesday, Immigration and Customs Enforcement announced that it's arrested an illegal immigrant from Honduras charged with felony rape by force, threat or intimidation, abduction by force and assault on a family member in Herndon, Virginia. The Honduran national unlawfully entered the United States on an unknown date at an unknown location, a press release from the agency said. The illegal immigrant was not inspected or admitted by an immigration official. An uh, illegal immigrant from Honduras who was released into the U.S. after being apprehended by Border Patrol in Texas in June of 21 is now charged with that felony 
um, apprehension. Ivanka Trump's appearance Wednesday was the highly anticipated conclusion to an unprecedented eight days of witness testimony that included Donald Trump and three of his adult children in a civil fraud trial brought by the New York Attorney General's office. The AG's office rested its case after hearing from the eldest Trump daughter, who was suppressed about her role securing loans for the Trump organization and a penthouse apartment she leased from her father. Her appearance was not anywhere near as contentious as her father's on Monday. There were no fireworks or angry outbursts. She was not a defendant simply a witness. Under cross-examination, Ivanka said Deutsche Bank had been uh, keen to do business with the family, even scheduling a lunch for Donald Trump with the bank's then chief executive uh, on one of his visits to New York. uh, York. She added that the German bank was very happy to see the extraordinary change that took place during the development of the Durrell Golf property in Florida, which Deutsche had helped to finance. On Monday, Trump confirmed that his company had paid off the last outstanding loan to Deutsche Bank and reiterated his assertion that the repayments meant there was no victim in the attorney general's case. The Israel-Hamas war may have given Joe Biden a brief respite from the constitutionally prescribed oversight of House Republicans, but that respite is officially over. Earlier this week, we noted Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer's efforts to connect the dots from the communist Chinese to Joe Biden's bank account. And now, as promised, the chairman has issued a blizzard of subpoenas for the Biden family. Demonstrating that they view the Palestinian living in squalor in Gaza as little other than human shields for their anti-Israel jihad, Hamas's top leaders won't even design, rather won't even deign to live amongst them. Instead, the top three leaders of Hamas spend their days living like kings in gutter, in lavish luxury, staying in five-star hotels and villas. The three Hamas leaders. Uh, have an an estimated combined wealth of $11 billion. Meanwhile, people living in the Gaza Strip are subject to abject poverty, as the millions of international humanitarian aid tellingly never seem to get to those who most need it. Gutter, the U.S. ally, has justified housing and protecting Hamas's leaders for years under the dubious claim that it was doing so to turn the terrorist group into a responsible governing power. However, after Hamas's October 7th terrorist attack on Israel, Republican Representative Andy Ogles, he introduced a bill that would strip gutter of its U.S. ally status if it does not end this terrorist harboring charade and expel these Hamas leaders. Democrats say let Hamas come here. Speaking of the uh, the terrorist group, the question that has been uh, bandied about after Israel launched its war to eliminate the threats of Hamas permanently is what to do with the refugees from Gaza. The fact of the matter is that none of the surrounding Arab countries want these Palestinians who are in fact Arabs. It's one of the primary reasons this conflict with Israel has continued unresolved for decades. Well, now leading Democrats, including Senator Dick Durbin and Representative Pramila Jayapal, uh, they've begun circulating a letter urging the administration to designate the Palestinian territories for temporary protected status and or authorize deferred enforced departure for Palestinians present in the United States. The letter further states, in light of the ongoing armed conflict, Palestinians already in the United States should not be forced to return to Palestinian territories. Evidently, they have uh, forgotten who our actually um, allies in the region is or that uh, jihadists could be posting as refugees or, or 
posing. The humanitarian effort should be focused on getting other Arab nations to re, um, in the region, like Gutter, which has long expressed support for the Palestinians to step up and take these refugees with whom they share a common culture and religious faith. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, yesterday, Jim Jordan's House Judiciary Committee held a hearing on free speech and anti-Semitism on college campuses. Given recent events, given that incidents of harassment, vandalism and assault on Jews have increased by 388 percent, it seemed a worthwhile topic. Sadly, it didn't take long for the pro-Hamas crowd, the end the occupation crowd, to disrupt and occupy the proceedings. As the Daily Signal's Tyler O'Neill reported, immediately after Jordan swore in the witnesses, a protester shot up holding a sign reading, Pro-Palestine doesn't equal anti-Semitism. Well, it doesn't necessarily, but as it's expressed itself here in the U.S., it seems to have fallen in that direction. The protester shouted something about genocide, adding over 10,000 people have been killed. That's the number that Hamas has given. And you're trying to silence the free speech of students. We wonder, was this dude charged, as hundreds of J6 protesters were, with disrupting an official government proceeding? Somehow, we doubt it. Another protester then went on to bat for a recently censoring pro-Hamas Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, claimed that uh, her colleagues were trying to silence her. That's, of course, not true. Tlaib is free to speak her mind, free to flaunt her bigotry, free to chant from the river to the sea. But that doesn't mean she's free from the consequences of such speech. Well, a pro-life activist is suing the Department of Justice. Mark Houck is a pro-life activist whom the Biden administration sent an FBI SWAT team to arrest at his home following an altercation near a Planned Parenthood abortion mill back in 2021. The administration charged Houck with violating the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrance, or FACE Act, though a jury acquitted him in January. Well, now Houck and his wife have filed a lawsuit against the Justice Department seeking $1.1 million in restitution from the Department of Justice for conducting a faulty investigation and using excessive force. As the lawsuit states, these government agents intentionally sought to assault Mr. Houck and deprive him of his Fourth Amendment rights by using excessive force to arrest him on nonviolent charges when he had not threatened law enforcement, did not own a gun, and had offered to turn himself into authorities if indicted. Houck states the reason for his lawsuit is to hold the Department of Justice and FBI accountable for their investigative and law enforcement officers' torturous conduct against him in front of his children. He has seven of them. One of the many benefits of the Biden presidency has been a return to normalcy, a return to a more peaceful and less turbulent time. We see the results everywhere in Afghanistan, Ukraine, in Israel, and we're starting to see the Biden uh, touch at work in the relationship between the world's two nuclear superpowers, the U.S. and Russia. Two days ago, for example, the Russians withdrew from the landmark treaty that limited certain categories of conventional armed forces in Europe. Soon thereafter, the U.S. and its NATO allies responded in kind, also suspending their participation in the treaty. The goal of the accord had been to keep countries from massing their forces on mutual borders and thereby reducing the likelihood of war. 
Well, so much for that. Joe Biden's weakness is again proving provocative. As the Wall Street Journal reported, suspending participation in the treaty, which continued to be implemented as the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union um, dissolved, will give the U.S. more flexibility in deploying forces on NATO's northern and southern flanks, including in Romania and Bulgaria near Ukraine. It also enables Ukraine's western allies to avoid sharing information on the deployment of their forces with nations close to Russia. So you see, Joe Biden has returned us to normalcy, returned us to the Cold War that Ronald Reagan had long won long ago. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission recently issued a warning to New England that if a planned uh, shutting down of a major natural gas terminal goes forward, it could lead to a situation where millions living in the region find themselves suddenly losing heat and power in the dead of winter. The FERC joined with the independent watchdog North American Electric Reliability Corporation in issuing serious concerns about outages. Increased reliance on non-natural gas generators means that should those expectations of new renewable energy systems not materialize as anticipated, ensuring reliability and affordability could become challenging in the face of a significant winter event. That issue is the future of the Everett Marine Terminal, which is the largest natural gas pipeline terminal in New England. The power grid restructuring is to, to favor renewable energy in the name of combating climate change has effectively made LNG power generation unprofitable. A company called Constellation operates the LNG terminal as well as the natural gas-fired power plant. It's slated for retirement as the company determined back in 2020 that it saw no path to continue commercial electric generation at the plant. Once again, the issue for renewable energy is reliability, a problem that fossil fuel-based power solves. Well, ending a 40-year hiatus, the GOP wins a city council seat in the Bronx. Republicans call on Ronna McDaniel to resign following Tuesday's election. Hillary Clinton compared Donald Trump to Hitler while warning he could win again. The Minnesota Supreme Court dismissed an insurrection clause challenge and allowed Trump on the primary ballot. Mainstream outlets have, outlets rather, have uh, photographers embedded with Hamas as the terror attack unfolded. Can you imagine that assignment? A U.S. drone has been shot down by Yemen's Houthi rebels. The U.S. launched an airstrike on a site in Syria in response to attacks by Iranian-backed militias. Nashville police say seven individuals are on administrative assignment amid a probe, in, probe rather, into leaked images from the Covenant school shooters' manifesto. A new HHS policy permits employees to wear clothing and use bathrooms based on their gender identity. And a new woke children's book has been released titled In Daddy's Belly, which, of course, really means my female mother carried me but chooses to live as if she were a man. Well, on this day in history, 1620, the passengers and crew of the Mayflower cite Cape Cod. 1938, Nazis loot and burn synagogues as well as Jewish-owned stores and houses in Germany and Austria in a program or or, um, deliberate persecution that became known as the Kristallnacht, the unofficial start of the Holocaust. 1961, U.S. Air Force Major Robert M. White becomes the first pilot to fly an X-15 rocket plane at six times the speed of sound. 1965, the Great Northeast Blackout begins as a series of power failures lasting up to 13 and a half hours leave 30 million people in seven states and part of Canada without electricity. 1967, Saturn V rocket carrying the unmanned Apollo spacecraft blasts off from Cape Kennedy and on a successful test flight. 
1989, communist East Germany threw open its borders, allowing citizens to travel freely to the West. Joyous Germans danced atop the Berlin Wall. And 2000, George W. Bush leads over Al Gore in an all-or-nothing Florida slip um, beneath 300 votes in a suspense-filled recount as Democrats challenge the presidential election in the courts, claiming an injustice unparalleled in our history. And finally, on this day in history, during a visit to Beijing in 2017, President Trump criticizes what he called a very one-sided and unfair trade relationship between the U.S. and China, But he said he doesn't blame China for having taken advantage of the U.S. if we're willing to be taken advantage of. Tomorrow on the program, a very special program for Veterans Day. And uh, we'll also have the Christian Outlook. So I hope you will join us. want to thank James Blinn for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.